Well, good morning, Sun Valley. It is, is a huge joy to be here with you all. It has been far too long. I look out and I get to see all these faces, which, you know, these mothers, these fathers, these brothers, these sisters, you guys are so dear to us, and we think of you guys often. We are so thankful for you guys. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be uh, preaching from this passage. Uh, in seminary, they, they told me, you know, pick passages that are like three verses, you know, stuff like that, you know, five verses long, because that never do anything like over, you know, six, and I picked 26. So um, what I want to, I, I'm going to get to that passage, I'm going to give you a little bit, a little bit of a schematic, I'm not going to be going in depth into each verse, I just, I want to use it to paint a picture for us about how central the heart is in everything. But before that, I just want to let you know, for those who don't know me, who I am. Uh, I'm Josh Ryan. I'm here, unfortunately, alone. My family's not here to back me up because they've been fighting some health issues. But my wife and I are missionaries from Sun Valley to Othello, Washington, and we are missionaries to the Miztec people, specifically of southeastern Guerrero. There's around 200,000 people of, that, of those tribes. It's a conglomerate of tribes that have the, generally the same worldview and the same religious beliefs. And many of them are up here in the States. And in fact, in Othello alone, there's about 5,000 of them right here in Othello. And so that's our mission, is to connect with these people. This is, an, this is according to IMB, International Mission Board, that's the missions arm of the Southern uh, Baptist denomination, says that this is the biggest unreached native people group in all the Americas, and 5,000 of them live right here in Washington. And so our mission is very simple, is to connect with these people and help establish a church, and through that church to disciple and train and send missionaries back to their own tribes to reach those tribes with the gospel. Um, and I'll be honest, you know, that sounds incredible, um, when it comes down to the day-to-day -day work, it's very ordinary. It comes down to connecting with people, praying for them, working with them, being faithful in their needs, helping them with basic needs day in and day out. Um, this last seven years, we've been there for almost seven years now, I can't believe that. But in these last seven years, we've gotten to visit about four to five hundred different homes. Um, actually, well, we've probably visited about four hundred different homes. We've probably connected with about five hundred different families throughout all the different parts, Ms. Teco families. And we've gotten to connect with them through all kinds of outreach programs, VBSs, through Christmas gift programs, visiting them door to door. Um, and through that all, we have a group, a little church now, of about four families, regularly four families. There's been people coming in and out on top of that as well, but really the core group of people has just, just recently had a little bit of growth, and for the last two years, we've been meeting at the, this, this little church campus that Othello First Baptist gave towards the Mistech Mission. And so, we, you know, and that's a very simple service, just to paint a picture of what it is like. It's essentially, we sit down, and uh, we have a little liturgy. I read a psalm, we pray, we go and we sing three songs, some in Mixteco, some in Spanish. And, uh, and then we pray again, we ask God to open up our eyes, our prayer of confession, we ask God to, um, we thank him for the gospel, we ask him to open up our eyes to the word, just like you guys do, and then we ha have a little sermonette where we, we I, I miss Teco right now, we're still working on it, so we, we listen to the word in Miss Teco, we listen to it in Spanish, and then I do, I preach it mainly in Spanish, but we stop regularly, and we work out in Miss Teco 
what, making sure we understand what the words mean, what's going on. And so it's, it's a really, you know, it's around a table, um, and it's been a really huge joy to see people's hearts just come alive. There's nothing like getting to see the light bulb come on in somebody's heart for the first time. And so when I was thinking and praying about what to preach on, um, this passage came up. I actually preached on this passage a few weeks ago at the English service in, in Othello, helping them out in, in preaching. And um, it really occurred to me that a lot of missions has some kind of this, this basic idea, that this kind of romantic idea that once you go out into the mission field away from, you know, the missions always look great far away, right? You know, up close, they seem like just ordinary and kind of boring. Far away in Africa, that seems like where the real action's at. And we have this romanticized view that if we go there, people are just going to have these soft, soft hearts ready to hear everything you're going to say. And what we have found, the reality is, is that all missions is to hard-hearted people. And it's extremely important for us to understand that all sinners have hard hearts, and we have to understand how God breaks those hard hearts and brings them to himself. So I'd like to go through and, and just look at that. I'm not sure if it's up on the board, but the title of the sermon is The Anatomy of a Hard Heart. Now, um, in the passage we read, there are four main parts. You have first the story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. Second, you have the Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. Third, you have Jesus' confrontation with the disciples, with them not understanding what's going on. And then you have this miracle, which I believe works as a living parable that talks about the hardness of heart and the blindness of eyes of the disciples. Now, the first thing this morning I want to clarify is, you know, as I talk about the hardness of heart, and I think about what that means for missions, the first thing we have to do is examine ourselves. And that's this morning what I'd like to do. The mission is this morning very simple. To, for us, my, my goal is to exhort us to examine our hearts and to examine what a hard heart is that we might first focus on what's on the inside and then from there that we might know how to, by God's grace, use the gospel to, and with, God's, with the Holy Spirit to work on the hard hearts of those around us. Because nothing is more deadly and horrifying than a hard heart. I don't know if you know that. But, uh, you know, there, a lot of people go out as doctors to the mission field, and they are trying to diagnose, and they're trying to... To be a good doctor, you need two main things, right? You need to understand the disease, and you need to understand the cure. And so much of the time, when you have missionaries going out, or, or even us in evangelism and discipleship, we can be like doctors who don't understand either one of those. Um, we're trying to cure temporal problems and just simple physical problems like only the, the, the political side of it or only the food side of it, and we neglect the core issues. It's like trying to treat, treat cancer, trying to treat heart disease with Band-Aids, something like that. But we're called to understand, it's important, it's critical for us to understand if we're going to be effective in our ministry, to understand what the problem is, and what the core of that problem is, and then how to deal with it. And as Jesus teaches us, it always comes down to the heart. And today what I'm going to do is essentially, I want you to think of yourself, um, by the way, uh, I'm going to talk about people as chain smokers, right? I, I know that some people here 
might smoke. That's okay. I, I, I know some people here, and I know there's this, you know, there used to be this thing where they would, you know, Puritans and pens, and I, I've heard rumors of, you know, smoking a pipe. I'm not talking about that. What I'm going to be talking about is I want you to imagine yourself going to the doctor as a chain smoker. You know, the kind of thing that you hate doing. Going to the doctor and you're paying him to tell you, you know, you feel like a child. You're paying him to tell you that you got problems and you need to change. And uh, we got to think about this and we got to come and we come to the doctor and we need to, to think about how a doctor is going to convince you to do something about your smoking problem. And the way I'm going to do this, the way that a doctor does it, is he's going to put up pictures, right? There's going to be pictures on the wall. And first, you're going to have this picture of this, you know, beautiful set of lungs that's healthy. And he'll talk about what you can do with those lungs. This is how it works. And then he's going to show you pictures of, like, a, a, somebody who has passed away from being a chain smoker. And he's going to show you how hard and black those lungs are. And well, the point of that is to make it real to you what's really happening on the inside so that you would be motivated to do something about your habits. And I want to do the same thing with the heart. So um, as I get going, I'm going to put, put forward these portraits that we see in this passage. And um, as I do so, I just want to clarify something out at the start. Um, when we talk about the heart, I want to define the heart. When we talk about the heart in our culture, we tend to think of it in very emotional terms, right? Like, uh, we, songs are about the heart, country songs are about the heart. They're very emotionally driven. However, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's much more than that. The, the, the Bible's definition of the heart it has to do more about the core of who you are, the core of your soul, where you both will and feel. Okay, it has to, the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology puts it this way, the heart denotes a person's center for both physical and emotional, intellectual, moral activities. Okay, the idea is it's the heart, the center of who you are, where you both will and feel. And so as we get into this, we got to realize this is way more than just thinking about getting emotional about God. This is about changing the core of who we are. So that's the first thing I want to look at and consider. What's the anatomy of a healthy heart? This first section in the parable, not of the parable, in the feeding of the 4,000, has two portraits of a healthy heart that I want to point out. And the first one is the portrait of a soft heart. A portrait of a soft heart, like a, basically you could imagine the heart of a young, healthy person, spiritually speaking. And in the story, you have this crowd of 4,000 men. And in reality, there's probably a whole lot more than 4,000 because there was probably women, some women and children with them. And as we talk about this, I want you not to get mixed up with the feeding of the 5,000, right? In the book of Mark, he's already fed the 5,000, and now he's feeding the 4,000. And it's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed this in the book of Mark, but the first section of the book of Mark, it, the first half of it, is all about Jesus revealing himself, right? He's revealing himself through preaching and through sign miracles, and as he's done it, up to chapter, the, the, just about the end of chapter 6, uh, he has been reaching out, his ministry has been exclusively to pri predominantly Jewish regions. Um, there's, one, there, I should say, there's one part where he goes and heals the man uh, that had the legion of demons, but his ministry has been to predominantly Jewish regions. If you remember, the, the feeding of the 5,000 is at the end of that, and he, he feeds them, and the people, as we know from the book of John, 
respond very negatively in general. Even though it's been a couple years of him revealing himself, doing incredible miracles, having incredible fame, the people in general have been unwilling to receive him as the Christ because he just doesn't fit their definitions, their concept of what the Messiah is supposed to look like. But when it comes to this crowd, we are, you see Jesus has this little section from the end of chapter 6 through the middle of chapter 8 of him reaching predominantly Gentile regions. He goes to Tyre and Sidon, and then he travels all the way over to the Decapolis, where there's mainly Gentiles. And that's where we find the feeding of the 4,000. And in the feeding of the 4,000, you see nothing negative said about the people. These people, in fact, it only speaks positively. Jesus tells us that they had been with him for three entire days. You imagine that. That's, that's significant. You imagine a sermon for three days? We could start now and just keep going here. But Jesus, he's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's with them in a desolate place, it says, for three entire days. Now, we have to, what we have to realize about that is that, you know, these people live in a survival culture. They have to plan ahead in order to have meals. They can't go to the mini-mart when they're hungry. They have to work, they have to think what they're going to be eating during the week. And what happens is that Jesus shows up in their midst and, and they go out to see him. Now, now, why would they be willing to go three days and suffer hunger and want to go see Jesus? And the simple answer is that they had an encounter with the living Christ. There was something about Jesus that pricked their hearts. They were so enamored with him that they were willing to forego their work, they were willing to leave their homes, and they were willing to forego food so that they could just be with Jesus. Now that's exactly what a soft heart is, right? This is at the core of a, what a soft heart is. It's a heart that wants to learn from Jesus. It wants to hear it wants to experience Jesus. He wants, it wants something new revealed to you about God. This is where the Christian life truly begins, isn't it? And I hope that every single person here has had this experience like these people. That you were living your life in, in your own way and then all of a sudden Jesus showed up in your life and everything changed. All of a sudden you begin to see that I want nothing more than Jesus Christ. A soft heart is where the Christian life starts. It's this desire to learn from Christ, but it doesn't stop there, does it? That's just the beginning. A soft heart is just the beginning. The whole point of a soft heart is to become mature and strong, right? And that's where you have the second portrait of a, of a, a healthy, mature heart. So first we have this picture of the crowd who show, and they, they showcase for us what a soft, healthy heart looks like. A heart that is ready to leave everything else behind and listen and learn from Jesus. Then you have the example of Jesus himself. And this is the picture of the mature, the perfect, the ideal heart. And what you see here is... By the time we come to this passage, Jesus has been powerfully and fearlessly ministering for about two years, and essentially with hardly any breaks. And he knows that in a few months' time that he is going to be murdered at the cross by the very people he's ministering to. He knows that in this, he's going to conquer on the cross, he's going to conquer death, and he's going to uh, raise from the dead, proving he is God. And 
But he's not just waiting for that moment to happen, just sitting in an armchair, waiting for where the ministry really is going to come to an end. What you see is Jesus constantly, zealously, tirelessly preaching the, the gospel and bringing glory to God. And you see him in this desolate place with no hotels, no markets, no comfortable place to stay, no place to lay his head. And then after it, you see the zealous heart of Jesus, you also see at the end of it, when, when, the, when Jesus was ready to dismiss all of them, you see that he's truly tired and he's worn out, but he sees the crowd and he has compassion. This is the second thing you see. You see, this, you see him say, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And in fact, he, he, he's unwilling to have them go away, that they might faint on the way. Now, when I am tired... That is when I have the shortest fuse possible. That's when I can make the easiest amount of excuses to say, you know, the kids, I'm putting the kids to bed, and they ask me, Dad, you know, it's 9 o'clock, they're supposed to be in bed at 8 o'clock, and then they finally ask me, hey, Dad, can I get a cup of water? Like, you know, no, you can go get the water yourself. I'm going to bed. But Jesus, when he's tired, when he's exhausted, he is unwilling to let the people go away unsatisfied. Because he has compassion for them. And so what I want to see, there's these, these two main parts that I, you know, there's a lot we could draw out here about what the heart of Christ is. But I want to focus on two main parts of it. A mature heart, a Christ-like heart, has these two things. It's defined, one, by a faithful zeal for the glory of God. And two, by compassion. Okay, that is, it's defined by a faithful zeal for the glory of God and compassion. When it comes to us, we have to keep this goal in mind. I mean, we have to look at this in Christ. He has been, what makes his heart tick is bringing glory to his Father, right? If you remember the book of John, he has this high priestly prayer, and the whole heart of it is he keeps repeating again and again that he has come to glorify his Father. And this is this beautiful truth about the God we serve, right? The Trinity. The Trinity is always giving glory away to each other. You have God the Father who's glorifying the Son, the Son who's glorifying the Father, and the Holy Spirit who's glorifying them both. And you see, Jesus, that's, that's his heart, is to bring attention not directly to himself, but to the glory of his Father. And then in turn, God brings glory to him. And for us, this is our, our goal. In the Mixteco Church Plan, in us, we have to understand this. A, a mature heart, a healthy heart, is fundamentally one that... Its passion, its zeal is for the glory of God. What makes it tick is getting to know and experience the glory of God and then show the glory of God to others. That's what fuels compassion, right? And so our goal for the mystical church is one, it's, this, this, this idea is repeated all throughout scripture, especially when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your might. That's zeal for the glory of God. And then second, that you would love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so you can see that the zeal for the glory of God leads you to want others to experience that glory of God, and therefore it motivates you to compassion. So we've got to realize this perfect picture in Christ is what we are aiming for. A soft heart doesn't, you don't just start with a soft heart one day. The whole point of a soft heart is to become established that you would have a zeal for God above all our things, and that the zeal for other things would diminish. And that that would express itself in compassion. 
And so there you have these two beautiful portraits, right? Okay, we start with that. The doctor shows you these two beautiful portraits, a soft new heart and a mature healthy heart. It's like to say, this is what needs to happen with your heart. It needs to get soft. And then it's to say that this is what we're shooting for. This is the goal. This is where we're going. Then the doctor turns to the pictures that we, we don't like to look at, right? The ones that we honestly cringe and look at away. If they, if they pop up and we, we, you know, we're, we're studying a disease, I, I have kind of a squeamish stomach. So, you know, when I'm studying different things, I'm looking up things and I look at a smoker's lungs, I, I can't stand to look at it for more than a few seconds. But if you're struggling with smoking as a trained smoker, you have to look at that picture, right? Because it brings it, it makes it real for you. And that's exactly what we see here with uh, the portrait of a hardened heart. And that, that picture, that example of a hardened heart, the worst case scenario, is the Pharisees. And here we have in verses 11 and 13, the Pharisees. Jesus feeds the 4,000. And he returns, he crosses back over the, over the, the, the Sea of Galilee. And immediately he's confronted, right? And he's confronted by the Pharisees who want to do one thing. And what is that? They want to argue, right? They come with him and they demand a sign. Okay, this is an absolutely um, ludicrous thing to demand of Jesus. Because Jesus has been publicly performing miracles. Every single proof that you could possibly need, he's been performing right in front of the eyes of everybody. And they want more. They want him to do something exactly the way they tell him to do it. They don't only want him to give this specific kind of evidence. What they really want is for Jesus to bow at their command, right? You see this in atheists a lot today, where they say, I'll believe in God when he strikes me with lightning. You know, I actually, I know, uh, growing up, I knew a guy whose friend said that and literally got struck by lightning. And he still hated God. Okay, the, the problem isn't is that there's a lack of evidence. The problem is, is that they want God to do it in their way. Essentially, it's, it's this crazy idea where you have the creature saying to God creator, I want you to prove that you're God by letting me be God and telling you what to do. Okay? It, it's literally impossible to, to, to make that work, right? It's like the, the, the servant saying to the master, I want you to prove that you're the master by letting me be your master. The Pharisees have that hard of a heart, that proud of a heart. And that's where it gets to this definition of a hard heart. That's showcased by the Pharisees. A hard heart is one that is fundamentally unwilling to learn. Okay, it is a soul that fundamentally is set in its ways. It will not listen to Christ. The question is, what causes it? If it's unwilling to learn, what causes it to be unwilling to learn? And the answer is pride. The Pharisees are defined by an unbelieving pride. They will not believe the evidence put in front of them because they are zealous, not for God, but zealous for themselves. Their hearts are filled with zeal for their own righteousness, not for the righteousness, not for the glory of God. Okay, a hard-hearted person, I think we need to clarify here, a hard-hearted person isn't necessarily a person who is so clearly and obviously grotesque like a, a dictator like Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh in the Old Testament is notorious for having a hard heart. But 
That's not real. It wasn't the fact that he did terrible things. A hard heart can do terrible, grotesque things. But what makes it hard is that simple reality of them not being willing to learn. What makes a heart evil is a hard heart over time. The heart gets evil over time because it's not willing to listen to God. But a hard heart simply is a heart that's unwilling to learn. And like we see, Jesus shows us that you could have a hard heart that looks like grotesque Herod, right? This immoral, grotesque Herod. Or you could have a hard heart that looks like the Pharisees who, you know, again, we look at the Pharisees and we like to, to, you know, point out how obviously evil they were. In those days, the Pharisees were kind of the heroes. They were the righteous of the righteous. And so they were the people who looked the best on the outside. And Jesus makes it clear that, that you have, if you have this yeast, they both have the same kind of yeast of unbelieving pride. Herod and the Pharisees. And apart from the miracle of regeneration, which leads to repentance, what's going to happen to a person who has this kind of heart? What's Jesus going to do? They're permanently hardened hearts. What's going to happen? Exactly what Jesus does here in the passage, right? He leaves them to their destruction. He has absolutely no need to validate himself before their demands because he's the king, he's the jury, he's the executioner, and not them. And so in this passage, you see Jesus, he just simply says no, right? And he walks away. The passage says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. Uh, this idiom has to do with showing great emotion under constraint. Okay, so he had all power and authority to snap these people out of existence who are getting in his face, telling him to do what they, what, what they want him to do. But instead of doing that, he sighs deeply in his spirit and says, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he leaves. It's interesting to note that in, according to the book of Mark, this would be the very last time that Jesus would be confronting the Pharisees in this region of Galilee. It was over for them. And unless the, these Pharisees were there in the mob who crucified Jesus, this would be the last time Jesus would interact with his people until he sees them at judgment day. Okay, so that's, the, that's what a hard heart is. It's leading straight towards destructions. Romans, too, tells us that what a hard heart does is store up wrath for the day of judgment. It's not just hard and going to judgment. It's like a snowball running downhill and accumulating mass and weight until it smashes into the, the judgment day. Now, that's the first type of hard heart. You see this picture. The doctor puts up this, this extreme case of a blackened, dead heart to scare you, right? It's what it's supposed to do. It would be a real warning to say, this is what that heart looks like. This is where it's going. But there's a second type of hard heart that he puts up. And uh, the, the picture that we see here is a picture of a mixed heart, a hard heart that is mixed. And the, the portrait for that is the disciples. The example is the disciples. These are the people who, except for Judas Iscariot, have been saved. They have had a soft heart in the past. They've had it in many different days. They are following Jesus day in and day out, but there's still a problem. They still have two masters in many ways. In our passage, the disciples leave with Jesus, right? And they go back in the boat. They've already crossed once. They meet the Pharisees, and then they cross back. They go back into the boat, and um, they forget bread. And then Jesus warns them. He says to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
Now, like we just talked about, what, what's he talking about? He talks about leaven of these two people. He's, he's getting at the pride, this, this pride which corrupts the whole person, this unbelief and pride that can corrupt the whole life of a man. And how it's just like yeast, isn't it? That just a little bit of pride can cause so much damage. But the disciples don't get it, right? They're profoundly obtuse. They're, they're as dull as a spoon. They, they, it completely goes over their head. And they look at each other and they basically begin to say, I knew it. You know, James, why did you forget the bread? You had one job, James. You were supposed to get the bread. They think that Jesus is mad about the bread and they completely miss that Jesus has been teaching with parables all the time. He's been, he, he is concerned about spiritual matters and, um, and Jesus rebukes them, right? And, and the, the fact that it goes over the head, in fact, reveals that they already have some yeast in the dough, right? There's already some pride working in there. Their hearts aren't learning from Jesus like they're supposed to. It's not like there's not enough evidence. They should have known how Jesus teaches, and Jesus rebukes them. Now, in particular, when we think about what the pride of the disciples was, Mark lets us in on, in chapter 9 that the disciples this whole time have been struggling with a, a misunderstanding of the Messiah still, just, just like most of the other people. They, they begin arguing in chapter 9 about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They think that the Messiah is still going to be, they think Jesus is going to come and set up a political kingdom and get rid of the Romans, and they're looking for dibs about who's going to have the highest rank in that kingdom, who's going to have the highest glory. And so they still have this, these two masters in their head. They want power and fame on some level, and they want to kind of do it through with Jesus. There's, there's this mix going on in their heart, which, which cannot be. They have hard hearts. But the thing that's different here is that Jesus doesn't abandon them, right? You have the permanently hardened hearts of the Pharisees, and he, he, perm, he, he leaves them. And then you have the hard hearts, the mixed hearts of the disciples, and he does not abandon him, does he? Like a loving father, he rebukes them, and just like all his parables, he explains it to his disciples. He, he shows them how his perfect sovereignty was there in each of these miracles. I mean, these two miracles show both his perfect, that he was God in the flesh, totally sovereign. They weren't getting that completely. And it shows that he was uh, the, the promised Messiah like Moses, okay? They point, they point to both those things. I can't think of a miracle that shows uh, Jesus' sovereignty quite in this way, right? Jesus feeds 4,000 men, maybe more like 15,000 people with all the women and children, and he specifically, you know, he takes these, this little fish and this little bread, and he divides them, so he's creating bread out of nothing for these people, okay, he's, he's dividing fish up that never existed, never swam in the ocean, divinely created fish he's giving to these, these people, and he makes tons of it, and he, he makes it just the right amount, knowing exactly how much they're going to eat, so that there's exactly, for the first miracle, 12 baskets of bread, with the feeding of the 5,000, and then the feeding of the 4,000, that there's seven baskets of bread, which are both two very significant numbers, right? And they point that you have the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. You have the seven, uh, the number of completements, the, uh, the number of completeness, the days of the week, the, numbers of can, uh, the number of candles in the temple. And you see, he's trying to open their eyes. He's telling them, he's opening their eyes, bit by bit. He's showing them, do you still have a hard heart? Can't you see who I really am? And so he works on it. And so what you see is that a, a mixed heart it might be soft in some ways, but it's impure, right? There's a lot of hardness. 
And that's where we get this working definition of a mixed heart. A mixed heart is an impure heart. It's immature and mixed with zeal for worldly things instead of a pure, undivided zeal for the glory of God. You see, the disciples had their eyes only partially open at this point. They didn't get really who Jesus was fully until after the death and resurrection of Christ. They've conflicted hearts that are slow to learn. And the question I have is, what's the destination of a mixed heart? And this is an interesting one, right? Because there's two types of mixed hearts. You have the kind of mixed heart, you have Judas Iscariot, who on the outside looked like a disciple. And then you have a mixed heart of like someone like Peter. You have somebody who truly believes, who truly has a soft heart, and who has his trust in Christ, and Christ is going to be faithful to open up his eyes all the way, to soften his heart all the way, and bring him to completion. And then you have people like Judas, who are caught up in the moment, caught up with the, the, the crowd, caught up with the rest of the church, but on the inside, they do not believe. They reject Jesus as God and Savior. And for us, if, we, if we're struggling with understanding where am I, we need to start examining ourselves, right? And this is where we need to start examining our own heart. We have to understand the, exam, the anatomy of our heart. And that's where you have these pictures, this, this picture of the, the uh, hardened heart, a mixed heart, the healthy hearts, a soft heart, and a uh, uh, mature heart. And the doctor brings up your scan. And he holds it up, and he places it in between, right? And what we need to do is, is do that same kind of thing with Scripture. Let Scripture be a mirror. Look at the picture of Christ, and honestly ask, or ask ourselves, where am I in this picture? Where is my heart? And we have to, uh, you know, we have to ask ourselves. We have to start with a diagnosis. Um, the hard heart's very hard to diagnose because it doesn't want to look at itself. It's one of those things where, you know, it's like trying to see your blind spot. You can't see it. The only way to do it is to have somebody else point it out to you. You have to go to God, use his word, and pray, Lord, where am I? But there's some tests that the scripture gives us to help us understand if we have a hard heart. We have to ask ourselves things like, do we isolate ourselves? The proverb says that a man who isolates himself uh, breaks out against all sound judgment. He seeks his own glory. Do you have habitual acceptable sins? Hebrews talks about that, let us away, lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and run the race marked out for us in Christ. Do we have habitual acceptable sins and we have distractions in our lives? during the day, is what we're doing truly to do it for the glory of God or is it to do it for the glory of ourselves? And we have to think about this. We have to start examining our affections, not just what we do, not making a list of things we do to see if we're doing okay. What we have to do is really examine our affections because that's the thing. You have to love him. You can't just know about Jesus and think you're okay. You have to love him. That Whether we live or die depends on our affection for Christ. So we have to diagnose ourselves. And once we, we see ourselves, we look at ourselves, and we see that a helpful thing to do is if we're struggling with the, whether we're saved or not, one, we need to ask the Lord, 
Lord, what is the fruit that you have put in my life of repentance? Okay, we don't look back and try to think of this one emotional moment where I think I had a soft heart. What we do is we ask the Lord humbly, when I'm struggling, our hearts condemn us, we look back and do we see the fruit of repentance over time in our lives so that we might know that he has been working with us, he's working in us, and then we need to fix our eyes on Christ and we need to see, Lord, I have a mixed heart, forgive me. I mean, to be honest, if whatever camp you're in, it's the same action you need to take, right? You have to repent. You have to, and, and to be able to repent, you need to, first you have the diagnosis. You look at yourself and you realize, I have a problem. I have a mixed heart. The second thing you need to do is, is drive that home with the prognosis. The prognosis means, where's that hard heart going to lead you? That hard heart's going to lead you to missing out on the glory of God. You got to remember, every day matters. For the, Christ talks about how even giving a cup of cold water to a disciple of mine, you will not lose your reward. These are eternal rewards in heaven for the glory of God. You do not want to be like the person in Jude who is saved but by the skin of his teeth, um, who just escapes judgment but has what will look back and be ashamed of not giving glory to Christ in their life. And so you have to see this hard heart is the most dangerous thing to my life. This is the main enemy. The main enemy isn't just philosophies. It isn't politics. The main enemy that I need to be focusing on is the heart, is a hard heart. And then we have to treat. We have to go to treatment. We have to repent. And, and this is where you don't, you don't, you don't just stop. Okay? Uh, the, the Bible, uh, the New Testament constantly talks about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, right? Each of the letters has this idea that you are mortifying the old way, the dead heart, and you are putting on a new lifestyle. You have to replace it. And the only way to do that is to focus your attention completely on Christ. Uh, you have to cultivate a desire for a learning heart. Remember, get to the heart of the issue. It's not about working yourself up to get emotional about, want, uh, about Christ. It's about learning to make habits that cultivate a desire for God. You need to want to have a soft heart. You're, you're going to become mature. You're going to have a mature, zealous heart for God if you start with simply getting your heart soft every single day, day in and day out. Because uh, Christ is the one who's alone that can change a hard heart. Uh, you know, I think that this last story is so powerful when it comes to understanding where to go. Uh, you have, I'm just going to read it again. In Mark 8, through 26, it says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands upon him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he, said to, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now this is just such an interesting miracle, right? You know, in the Bible, a hard heart and blind eyes are really similar concepts. They really get at the same issue. And what's so interesting about this miracle is that Jesus doesn't heal them all at once. I mean, he's been, he heals blind men instantly in other times. He heals all these people in miraculous, instantaneous ways. And it's not that Jesus couldn't heal them all the way. 
But what I see going on here, especially in the context of Mark, is that you have Jesus using this essentially as an illustration to his disciples. You have him take this man away privately. You notice that. This, this wasn't done for everybody. He leads them out. It's with him and his disciples. And they beg him, you see, this man, and we need to become like this man. He's blind. I mean, I could, we can relate to this man, right? Don't you ever wish you could see Jesus? and be with him, and just have him heal your heart, just be with him physically, literally, and have him work on you, and talk to you directly, physically, what you have, we, we, we can relate to this blind man, to where we can't see Jesus, but we can have him lead us by the hand, and heal us, and what happens is, Jesus takes him by the hand, he has to, he has to feel Jesus's hand all the way out, out of town, and then Jesus spits in his eyes, Okay, that's an interesting thing right there, right? You know, you think about what that would feel like, right? If your eyes were closed and you're feeling Jesus touching you and it's spitting on your eyes. And then he, he opens his eyes and he doesn't see all the way. He, he sees people. He says, I see people, but they look like trees. And then he heals them all the way, right? He, he, and what you see here is that this is exactly what's happening to the disciples as well, right? Jesus has him there, and, and uh, pretty soon in the next passage, Peter's going to make this great confession that Jesus is the Christ, but then he proves that he doesn't understand what that means when he begins to rebuke Christ when he explains he has to go to the cross. And, uh, and this is what the disciples had to do. The only way for them to really get healed was this one thing, is to stick with Jesus, to be with him. Jesus is the one who breaks open a hard heart. He's the one who makes it soft. He's the one that makes it mature. You cannot do it. You have to daily and consistently go to him and let him open your eyes. And a, a way that I think of it, you know, it, it, it's like when you're trying to quit smoking. You, you don't just get an emotional high to stop smoking. What you need to do is form those habits. You need to think of it like hunger. You need to get hungry. When you, when you go to eat breakfast in the morning, you've been starving, you wake up and, and you need food. You need to look at God in that same kind of way. You need to look at his scripture in that same kind of way to where you need to know something new from him. You need him to open up your heart more so that you become more like him. Now, when we, we talk about and we think about the Mizteco people and, and you know, how this informs what we do in, in the mission to reach them, the, the mission isn't to just you, we got to realize that they have a, a worldview that's utterly different than ours. A very broken worldview that is dominated by superstition and fear of spirits. And there's so many aspects of their heart which are hardened. Uh, I look at, uh, there's the people who just have a, a, a really hard heart and just reject it out of hand. Um, like like the, the person we mentioned this morning. Um, and... Uh, um, I, I don't want to, I, I know this is recorded, so I don't want it to be online, but um, her name, but her husband has just such a hard heart, has no desire to learn from him. And then you have people in our own congregation, among our, even in ourselves, there's just, just this propensity to let the world start filling in the desires in your heart, to try to let your heart be satiated with those desires. And they have worldview issues with understanding how Mary fits into this. I mean, they have, they have worldview issues about how, what spirits look like, how they function. And, and sometimes there's just such a network of things that need to be touched on that I couldn't possibly know what they need to hear week in and week out. But what we trust 
what they really need. The reason that they come to church isn't to listen to a white guy preaching at them. The reason they come to church is they just need Jesus. And that's what's just so beautiful to see in some of the people coming right now. And having the light bulb come on as you see this desire that they, they, with eating comes the appetite. They begin learning from Jesus, being with him, and it's just you see their eyes open. And then, of course, a little bit later, they'll be talking to you, and it's like, wait, didn't you remember what we talked about? You know, your heart's still not there, not all the way. And so the people in church, I would say, are still in that same boat, just like all of us, right? We're all battling this battle to where we should be a lot more mature than we, than, than we, uh, we are, right? And we need to, we all have the same issue. We need to be praying for each other. Uh, uh, at the church, one of the joys that we get to do is pray for Sun Valley. And we get to pray for the churches around us. And it's really neat to see them take the initiative to pray for people who they know are behind us and with us and other Christians. And I would just implore you, and I would ask you all to please pray uh, that the people in the Mizteco Church would, that God would break those hard hearts. They have so much confusions and things that we're working through, and God's, and it's so neat to see him advancing, but I would ask you all to please pray. Pray for our hearts as a church that here at Sun Valley, that we would have an ever new, soft, and mature heart, and that we would continue to preach the word to be able to break the hearts, uh, that, that God would use us preaching the word to break the hearts of more people and bring them to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you, uh, Father, took us. Uh, we had black, dead hearts like the Pharisees. We were born with them. And without you, Father, we had absolutely no hope. But because of your great mercy, you caused us to be born again. You gave us faith. You gave us hope. You gave us a soft heart. And Father, you're working in us a heart that has a true, real love and compassion for the lost. And you're working in us that we might have a true, real, deep and abiding zeal for the glory of God. Father, I do pray that every single person here might have that love for your word. That there would be a desire for your word which is so much greater than earthly hunger. That's greater than every single passion that we could have. Father, please soften up our hearts. Lord, I pray that um, you would work in us and you would work in the Mixteco people, that you would be glorified in all things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.